What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. We are going to turn now to junk science and the utilization of it for convictions for some of our most marginalized populations. Today, we're going to talk about junk science as it relates to stillbirths and women being convicted based on a faulty lung float test. We are joined this morning by Dua Eldib, a reporter at ProPublica whose reporting has sparked legislative hearings and government reform and has led to the release of young men incarcerated as juveniles, then later sent to adult prison for minor offenses. Her latest reporting is on a forensic analysis tool that experts have likened to a witch trial to convict women who've had stillbirths at home of murder. As a result of her reporting on this topic, new investigations are underway to examine the validity, or not, of the forensic junk science. Her latest piece in ProPublica is titled Experts to examine a controversial forensic test that has helped convict women of murder. Good morning, Dua. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me on. I just have to tell you that last night and this morning as I was preparing for our interview, my head just kept repeatedly exploding. I, so let's I mean, I'm, I'm bad at science. And, and even I was clear uh, that, that this was really problematic. But let's get to it uh, from my listeners. What is the floating lung test? So it's a test that has been around for hundreds of years, and it purports to determine whether or not a baby was born alive or not. So if there's questions about, you know, whether a baby was born alive, then medical examiners will take the baby's lungs and put them in water and see if they float. And the theory is that, you know, um, if they float, then the baby likely was born alive. And if they sink, the baby likely was stillborn. Um, and this is an archaic test, and it's been around for centuries. And even when it was first introduced, there were questions about the validity and the reliability of this test. But it's a little-known test. And I, like you, when I learned about it, my head kind of exploded. I was shocked to know that this test existed and even more shocked to know that it's still being used. How did it come across your radar? So I've been reporting on stillbirths for ProPublica for the past two years, and I've been examining different angles of the stillbirth crisis in the United States. So in the United States, every year, more than 20,000 babies are stillborn. And that's another one of those statistics that really just you know, boggled my mind when I read it. And so I've been trying to come at this from different angles. And one of the angles that I had not examined yet was kind of the nexus between stillbirths and criminal justice. So as I was doing my research for that, I came across this lung float test. And I was like, is this real? Is, is this actually like <laughs> legit happening? Like I was just, I was so taken aback. And, and the more research I did, the more I realized that um, this was the story that I had to do because um, the the consequences for getting this wrong were so devastating. And this will come into play later in my line of questioning for you, but I do think it's important, right, when, when you look at the numbers of stillbirths that are happening in this country uh, that claims to be, you know, one of the most developed in the world with our great medical system. Can you just aggregate that by data for me, please? 
Yes. So um, every year, 20,000 babies are stillborn. And and a stillbirth is the death of a um, baby 20 weeks or more gestation. So 20 weeks of pregnancy or beyond. Um, If that baby is, you know, dies in utero, then that is considered a stillbirth. And, um, you you know, one of the the metrics that experts look at, and this is not just a United States problem, this is a problem across the world, but one of the things that that experts look at is like, you know, how good are countries at reducing their stillbirth rate? And the United States lags behind um, many of the developed countries and being able to reduce its stillbirth rate. We've been kind of, you know, we've been floating around 5.7 for the last several years. And so not only is that a huge problem, but if you look at, you know, who is being affected by these stillbirths, it has a disproportionate impact on women of color. Black women are more than two times as likely to have a stillbirth than white women. Um, and, you know, and, and, and the numbers are, are much higher as well for um, Native women um, and Indigenous women. That's exactly where I wanted you to go. Thank you so much. <laughs> and that gets me to, um, I want to walk through um Well, you mentioned dire consequences, and what you mean by that is women are being sent to prison for this. Um, And I want to walk through a couple of the stories that you have in the article, and I'd like you to start with Moira Akers, please. Yes, so so Moira Akers is a mother from Maryland, um, and she had two children, two young children at home. They weren't planning to have a third child. She found out she was pregnant. You know, her and her husband um, discuss it. And, you know, they decide that she is going to have an abortion. She's 37. She's overweight. She had other, you know, risk factors. Um, you know, financially, they weren't in a very good position. So, you know, they decided they were going to have an abortion. She goes to the doctor to have an abortion. And um, this is around 15 weeks of pregnancy. And um, basically, the doctor, as I understand it, tells her, like, you know, they can't do an abortion for her. At that point in her pregnancy, she's going to have to go somewhere um you know, else, and she's like really next to the DC area, so they refer her to, um, you know, um, doctors outside of, of of Maryland. And at that point, she decides like it's just going to be too hard um, and too difficult. So she decides to hide her pregnancy. Um, and her plan, as she told police, as she told investigators, was to have the baby and just to give it up for adoption when she had the baby. No one really noticed that she was pregnant. She didn't gain a lot of weight. Um, and so when it comes time to um, deliver, she kind of has contractions and um, she goes to the bathroom um, and she delivers the baby and the baby lands in the toilet. Um, and so um, she picked up the baby and as she told police, she said the baby was not breathing, the baby was not moving, the baby did not make any noises. Um, and so she took the baby you know, to another room. She didn't know what to do. Um, she panics and she found a bag that she had been putting her daughter's clothes in to put away and she put the baby in the bag um, and she put the bag in the closet um, and she's bleeding profusely. Um, her husband comes upstairs, they call 911, she goes to the hospital uh, because she's bleeding out and at the hospital, uh, you know, the doctor asks, the doctor sees the umbilical cord, asks about the baby and she says, the baby is, you know, at home in the closet, you know, and I had a stillbirth. And she says this repeatedly at the hospital, um, but police don't believe her. Uh, they, and they 
prosecutors charge her with child abuse and murder and they point to the fact that she had wanted an abortion they point to the fact that she was um, had the baby at home um, and that she hid it in the closet and a jury ends up and the lung float they use the lung float test um, as kind of you know one of one of the key pieces of evidence against her saying that the lungs uh, partially floated um, and so uh, a jury finds her guilty of child abuse and murder and last year she was sentenced to 30 years in prison and she is currently serving out that sentence I was going to walk through a couple more stories, but I'm clocking time and there's other things that I want to ask you. But there's this this is sort of a similar pattern, right? I was going to talk about Latisse Fisher, too. And so there's several women in your story who all tried to hide what happened. My, my question to you is, what is the fact that these women tried to hide what happened say to you about the societal pressure on women to give birth, to be good mothers, for there to be no room for error in their bodies or decision making? And, and that's exactly a question I had for mental health experts. I talked to, um, you know, a psychiatrist um, who deals with this, and she says that, you know, what we forget oftentimes in society is that childbirth is a very dangerous experience. You know, women die, babies die, and to do it alone is a harrowing thing. And the expectation is that women are able to deliver a baby healthy, and they're supposed to be happy about it and that they are not supposed to have any qualms or uh, questions about whether or not they're going to have this baby. And so all of that then is used against them when it comes, if anything goes wrong. I think it's also important, Dua, to uh, address the bias of law enforcement here, right? They're the first ones on the scene. They develop a narrative based on whatever stereotypes they have about people of color or poor people. And then they take that narrative to the medical examiner or coroner who often works with or literally inside of the law enforcement agency, correct? Yeah, I, I talked to uh, Eve Kapir, who is an attorney at Ifwin Howe, and, and that's exactly what she said. Um, you know, she handles a lot of these cases, and she says sometimes she gets prosecutors who tell her, like, look, they should have just called police. If they had nothing to hide, why didn't they just call 911? You know, and then she points to the case of Latisse Fisher, where she had a stillbirth. They called 911 within, you know, minutes of, you know, her telling her husband, and she was still arrested because she said exactly as you said that a lot of times police will have a narrative and um, then they share that narrative with medical examiners and then it just kind of becomes this runaway train and then i'll, I'll just say this we don't have to delve deeply into it because i want to get to some of the medical rebu rebuttals but then that bias that racial bias or class bias continues inside of the criminal legal system and thus then women are being funneled into prison um, for this. Can you talk about the medical rebuttals? Like, what are the medical experts you're talking to saying about the validity of this test? So it's interesting when I, you know, when I started reporting on this, um, I had heard from a couple of experts who were uh, strongly against it because they said it has no foundation in science. This is just something, you know, this relic that has been passed down. But when you actually look at it, there's no scientific rigor standardization behind the test. Um, but then I wanted to kind of see, you know, it kind of to take a gauge across the country. So I sent out requests to, you know, the largest medical examiners across the country just to get a sense from them. 
And what I was, you know, um, surprised to, to hear from them is, you know, I had quite a few respond unequivocally saying, we do not trust this test. It is unreliable. It is inaccurate. Um, and we do not use it. Um, so, I, you know, I got quite a few, again, these were, you know, pretty strong responses saying we do not use it. I got a couple of others who said, you know, yes, we use it, but we also use these other tests with it. Um, there was also a response from Oregon where they said, like, look, this test has a lot of questions. It's very controversial. At the end of the day, you know, like we would rather um, not base something so strong like a, you know, murder charge, uh, like a determination of, of a live birth on something that has so many questions. So we don't use it. As a result of your article, there are two universities uh, that have embarked uh, on, on a, a quest to, to do deeper study on this test. Can you talk about that, please? Yeah, there are um, two experts, Aziz Ahmed and Daniel Medwood, uh, one with Boston University, one with Northeastern University, who um, have announced that they are going to be launching a research study group to look at the medical underpinnings of this test, the you know the the scientific validity, and uh, whether or not it should be used in criminal cases. Um, one of the experts there, Daniel Medwood, does a lot of wrongful conviction, innocence work. And, you know, he said his concern is that, you know, if this test, I mean, because sometimes it gives positive, um, you know, correct answers, but when it has a wrong answer, the result could be a wrongful conviction. So they are um, putting together a team of experts to delve deep into it and to decide whether or not um, you know, it should be used in court because what I'm seeing from a lot of judges and prosecutors is it becomes a battle of the experts. You've got two experts, one expert saying it's not reliable, one expert saying it is. And then a lot of times judges will just kind of throw their hands up and say, okay, we'll let the jury decide. I think it's also important uh, to uplift the current political threats to this test being used more often and sending more women to prison, given the impact that we're already seeing on the criminalization of women in pregnancy uh, with the Dobbs decision. Yes, absolutely. There's, um, you know, the group uh, Pregnancy Justice released um, a report last summer right after the Dobbs decision came down kind of um, advising lawyers, criminal, um, medical examiners, social workers, policymakers on how to move forward with the criminalization of pregnancy. And one of them was the lung float test. And they said, you know, you should not use this and you should question it uh, because it is coming up. And the fear is now when any pregnancy that does not end in a living, breathing baby, um, that will be questioned by prosecutors and police and that, that this test can come into uh, play more often. And you didn't talk about this in article, but I'm gonna keep I'm gonna tug at this thread. I'm wondering if you placed you know this conversation or this this inquiry into the lung float test, into the larger context of the thousands of women also wrongfully convicted for killing their babies through things like shaken baby syndrome, which was such a thing 20 years ago and is now talked about as as junk science and is often the result of an accident, not a mother throwing their child around. How bad does society need someone to blame when a baby dies? I think that, you know, the death of a baby for so many people is this unfathomable thing. And it's a tragic thing. I think we all recognize that. And so I think there is a natural reaction to want to blame someone. 
And unfortunately, the mother is the one that is often the easiest uh, to blame. And so I think that's exactly right. I think that um, as a society, because it is a terrible, tragic thing that happened, we look for someone to hold responsible. Um, and unfortunately, that often is the mother. Dua Eldeeb, I could talk to you for much longer, but we've got to leave it there. I hope you'll come back. Thank you so much for your reporting and for joining us on the show today. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on today. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox Vibe. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam. <laughs>